0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to be here. uh, I've never worn a robe like this before, so I actually stumbled up the back stairs because I think it's actually a little too long because the pastor that normally wears this must be a giant. Um, (laughs) But anyways, here I am, and I am delighted to be in Pete's church uh, addressing you this morning. And I have three reasons to be grateful to this church, the first of which is that my son Pete has had two years of amazing experience here, just kind of learning under your pastoral staff about, and and actually experimenting on your kids, uh, working out the bugs in his ministry model, but he hopes to be a youth pastor when he graduates from Wheaton, so I'm thrilled with that. Uh, Number two, uh, the Beret family goes to this church, and I know Jim is here today, I saw him sitting there, and Jim drove all the way down from Wisconsin, where he now lives, but his mother Barbara's here, and his brother is here, Uh, and... um, Uh, Jim has been on our board of directors for many years and was actually the chair of the search committee in 1998 that that brought me to World Vision. At the time, I wasn't terribly grateful to him for doing that, but I've come to become very grateful to Jim for uh, changing my life in that way and playing a role. And the Bray family's been uh, just a great source of friendship for me and Renee. And then thirdly, I want to appreciate you because I know you sponsor almost 400 children through World Vision, most of them in Mozambique. And uh, we're just delighted to be partnering with this church in uh, in a growing way uh, as, as the years go on, and uh, we love being your partner. So thank you for all of the above. Um, I'm also excited to be part of your new sermon series, uh, World Changers, because I actually believe that Christ called us to change the world and actually believe that we can do it. Well, I want to start this morning with a question for you. Um, I always like provocative questions because they really stir the pot and and make us think. And um, I'm going to pose several questions like that to you this morning. They're really designed to make you a little uncomfortable, um, so bear with me. But there's a question that appears on the cover, the front cover of my book, The Hole in Our Gospel, and it's a simple question. It's this, what does God expect of us? What does God expect of us? And what does it truly mean to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, all my life, I've struggled to answer this question, and others like it. Um, And on the surface, this does seem like a simple question, doesn't it? Uh, Maybe the Sunday school second graders could answer that question as well as any of us. And as we start to answer that question, some simple things come to mind. Uh, What does God expect? Well, first of all, we need to believe the right things. Uh, Good doctrine and good understanding of the foundations of our faith is, is, is so important. Uh, Of course, we should uh, go to church and worship on a regular basis every Sunday. Uh, We should have fellowship with other Christians within and outside of the church building. We should read our Bibles on a daily basis to seek guidance. We should, of course, always be in prayer uh, with our Father. Um, Say grace before meals. And, uh, of course, we should avoid the worst kinds of sins, uh, things like adultery and murder and theft and greed and even things like pride, and, and, and there's so many of those uh, deadly sins that we should avoid as Christians, and I think your pastor would say amen to all of those things. But is that it? Is that really all that God had in mind, uh, or is there more? Is there more? Well, I want to tell you about a moment in my life when this very question of what God expected of me came crashing into my life in a a very powerful way. And it was August of 1998, and I was in Rakai, Uganda, my first ever World Vision trip as president, my first ever trip to Africa. And I can remember it even today as I sat inside this crude mud-thatch hut right at the equator. It was over 100 degrees. I can still feel the perspiration going down my back because I have this robe on. Uh, (laughs) It's really bringing it back to me right now. It's really bringing it back to me. (laughs) And uh, But I sat inside that mud hut with three boys, age 10, 11, and 13, and um, I listened to the story that the oldest boy was telling. His name was Richard, just like mine, and Richard and his brothers were AIDS orphans. And just outside their mud hut were two piles of stones, and I made the mistake of saying, well, what are those big piles of stones? Uh, And the World Vision staff member pulled me aside and said, that's where their mother and father are buried. Uh, Those are the graves. And um, you have to understand that just 60 days before this trip, I was in my corporate boardroom at Lenox, uh, CEO of America's Fine China Company. Thank you, ladies, for your support over the years. And my (laughs) apologies to the men for all the money that you may have invested in those baubles, it was a waste, I can tell you now. Um, but uh, so i can 't tell you how far out of my comfort zone I was that day, having been a corporate CEO, literally a million miles uh, emotionally from Rakai, Uganda, because you see i didn 't really want to be there at all that day i didn 't want to be in a place where poverty and suffering had names and faces. For most of my life, I'd lived inside a very cozy and comfortable bubble. And inside that bubble, things were safe. And tragedies like AIDS orphans and starving children rarely entered in. And when they did, I could change the channel. I could turn the newspaper page. I could even write a check to keep them at an arm's length distance out of my comfort zone. But you see, not in Rakai, not there. I couldn't do that in a place where the AIDS pandemic was in full bloom. Richard and his brothers were what World Vision called a child-headed household. And as I sat there, I thought about just what that meant for these boys. Three boys living totally alone with no adults in their lives. They lived in a place with no running water, no electricity, not even mattresses to sleep on, just some ragged blankets on the dirt floor. There was no one to cook for them to make sure they had food to eat. There was no one to hug them or tuck them in at night. There was no father to help these three boys become men. There was no mother to hold them tight when they needed a mother's love. How could this be? I found myself asking. How could this have happened here? Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me. I didn't know. I just didn't know. But I did know. I knew that there were children in the world like Richard and his brothers. I knew about poverty and hungry children. It wasn't that I didn't know. We all know. We all know. It's just that we usually choose to look the other way. But I couldn't look the other way here, because here they were real. They had names, they had faces, they had stories, and they had eyes that stared back at mine. Well, how did I react to this life-changing confrontation with human tragedy? Well, a range of emotions coursed through me. I cried a lot on that trip, but I got angry when I thought about this. I was angry first with myself, Why had I not done more about this before this time? But then I started to pass the blame to others and get angry with others. Why wasn't something being done? Where were the headlines? I was told there were 60,000 orphans in Rakai alone and 12 million across Africa because of AIDS. How could it be? Where was Anderson Cooper? Where was CNN? Where was the outpouring of compassion that these children deserved? And then I had this sick feeling in my stomach as I asked a different question. Where was the church? Where were the Christians? Why weren't the pulpits across America flaming with exhortations for all of us to rush to the front lines of compassion to come to the rescue of these dear children that God loved so much? Surely the church should be helping. We all remember the beautiful Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 where the angels came and said, "'Do not be afraid.'" I bring you great news, good news of great joy that will be for all people. I remember thinking, good news, really? For all people? You see, the word gospel literally means good news. But what good news, what gospel had Richard and his two brothers experienced? You see, the gospel that they'd experienced and had felt was incomplete. Something was missing. It was a gospel with a hole in it a phrase that would later become the title of my book. And you see, that day in Rakai, Uganda, I realized there had been a hole in my own understanding of the gospel for all these years. My faith had been about my own personal salvation. It was kind of a transaction between me and God where my sins were forgiven. I had the fire insurance policy in the drawer, and now I was free to go back and do whatever I wanted, to climb the corporate ladder, to buy a big house, to fill it with a lot of nice stuff. But you see, my gospel didn't take into account boys like Richard. Now, I went to church every Sunday. I attended a couple's Bible study for every year of our marriage. Renee and I have been in a couple's Bible study. I had a Bible on my desk at Lenox. I read the Bible every day. I did all the right things. I believed all the right things. Or so I thought. But you see, my faith had become part of that comfortable bubble that kept the pain of the world outside. I'd forgotten that God loved the world so much that he gave his son to die for it, and I had failed to love that same world. What did God expect of me? Well, I'm going to give you the simple one-word answer this morning that I discovered everything. God wanted all of me, heart, mind, and soul. Well, how did a nice CEO like me end up in a terrible place like that to begin with? I blame Jim Bure, basically, but uh, I'll tell you a little bit more of the story. Uh, Again, 60 days earlier, I had been CEO of Lennox, and one day, a few months before that, the phone rang, and it was an executive recruiter, and he was looking to find the next president of World Vision. World Vision had hired him, and I always took executive recruiter calls because it might have meant a bigger job with more money. After all, that's what it was all about for me. Well, I don't have the time this morning to tell you the whole story. You'll have to buy the book to to get that. But as soon as I realized that there was no money in this for me, I tried to get this recruiter off the line. I told him I wasn't interested in the job. I wasn't uh, really qualified, and, and I wasn't willing uh, to pursue it. And then he was persistent, and he wouldn't let go. And he said, Rich, let me ask you a, a different question. And then he asked me one of those questions that hit you right between the eyes, Rich, are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? Now, that's a terrible question to ask somebody. That is a rude question. You've got to know somebody really well to ask them that question. Now, you know, on the surface, this is another one of those second grade Sunday school questions. Are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? The answer is, of course I am. I'm a Christian, aren't I? That's what we do. We're open to God's will for our life. But wait a minute. Not so fast, because behind a question like that are other questions that can't be answered quite so easily. Questions like this, Rich, are you willing to quit the job that you worked 25 years to get? Are you willing to walk away from your career and maybe commit career suicide? How about that 75% pay cut that's involved? And then there's the matter of that beautiful home in Pennsylvania on the main line on five acres. An 1803 stone farmhouse with 10 bedrooms, the house that you and Renee bought to raise your five kids in. Are you willing to put that on the market, Rich? And how about moving those five kids, pulling them out of the school that they love, away from all of their friends, leaving the church that, that you've loved and it's become your church home, and moving 2,500 miles across the country for this crazy job at World Vision? Are you willing, Rich, to be open to my will for your life? What a terrible question. But you see, there were questions even at a deeper level than those more superficial ones about things. Rich, are you willing to enter the pain and the suffering of the poorest of the poor? Are you willing to travel to garbage dumps where children scavenge for food and enter the stench of refugee camps in Haiti, hold dying babies in your arms and see the eyes of famine staring back at you from children's faces? Are you willing to follow me there, Rich? Those are uncomfortable questions, aren't they? Are you comfortable this morning? Someone once said that Jesus came to comfort the afflicted, but also to afflict the comfortable. Well, let me tell you, in the weeks after that phone call, I was sorely afflicted, trying to figure out if I was willing to be open to God's will for my life. And this morning, I'd like to afflict some of you with the same scriptures that I I wanted to tear out of my Bible during those weeks as I was going through uh, and wrestling what God expected of me. And if you want to follow me in your Bibles, I'm going to jump around, but I'm going to start with the book of James, the familiar passages from James 2, starting at verse 14. James said this, What, is it, what good is it, brothers, if a man claims to have faith but no deeds? has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by works, is dead. But someone will say, yeah, you have faith, uh, I have works. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You see, James is saying pretty clearly here that God does have expectations of us that go beyond just believing the right things. He says it even more bluntly in James 1.22. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. Well, I don't like James. He's kind of an oddball. So let's see, maybe John's got a more rational approach to this. So John, 1 John three seventeen. if anyone has material possessions, anybody here have material possessions? And sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Now, some of you are probably getting uneasy this morning because it sounds very much, very suspiciously, like I'm talking about salvation based on works rather than faith. And I want to put your mind at ease. I'm a good Presbyterian. Uh, In Ephesians 2, we read the key text that puts this fallacy to rest, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's pretty clear. That's pretty clear. Our personal salvation depends only on the atoning gift of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then there's this very next verse in Ephesians that gives us a glimpse of what God expects that our saving faith is actually supposed to produce. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So in other words, the purpose of our faith, uh, the product of our faith, the logical outcome of our faith in Jesus Christ is to do good works that that God prepared in advance for each of us to do. So in this model, good works are the evidence that we have experienced redemption and renewal in Christ. And let me illustrate this by asking you to picture two large apple trees One of the trees is brittle and dry and has absolutely no leaves or fruit on it whatsoever. The second tree, by contrast, is lush and green, covered with leaves and so laden with fruit that the branches are literally bending to the ground. Well, obviously, by the evidence, the first tree is dead. And the second tree, bursting with fruit, is very much alive. But it isn't the fruit that produced the life in the tree. It's the life in the tree that produced the fruit. The fruit and the leaves are just the tangible evidence that the tree is alive, and that's exactly how it works with our salvation. It isn't our good works and deeds that result in our salvation. Rather, our good, de- our good works and deeds are the evidence of our salvation. And God is not pleased with those who claim to believe but bear no fruit in their lives. Now, I've asked some tough questions this morning, but Jesus in Luke chapter 6 asked an even tougher question. And it sends a chill up my spine every time I read this verse. He looked at those that were following him and he, and he scolded them. And he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I say? Ouch, that's a tough question too. And in Matthew 7, talking about the same event, he uses the same metaphor of bearing fruit to explain with brutal clarity just what he thinks of people who talk the talk but fail to walk the walk. Listen to Matthew 7, starting in 16. He says, "'By their fruit you will recognize them, my followers. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them.'" And now here's the hard part, uh, starting in 21. "'Not everyone who says to me, "'Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, "'but only he who does the will.'" of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, "Uh, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So what does God expect of us? That's the question we're trying to answer this morning, and perhaps the most powerful passage in all of Scripture in answer to this question comes from Matthew 25. It's Jesus describing the last judgment day, where the sheep and the goats are gathered before the throne of God, and God is passing out his judgment. And starting in verse 34, he says this, the words of Jesus. He says, "'Then the king will say to those on his right, "'Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance.'" The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was imprisoned and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Here we're told that when we demonstrate God's love to the least and the lost, we are literally doing it to Christ himself. Now, I've written a little irreverent, different version of Matthew 25, that, and I want you to Listen to it and see if it doesn't more accurately describe some American Christians. It goes like this, "'For I was hungry while you had all you needed. "'I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water. "'I was a stranger, but you wanted me deported. "'I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. "'I was sick, and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. "'I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved.'" Well, you get the picture. The answer to the question of what God expects of us is all, not all that mysterious. God is pretty clear about it. And Jesus made it even simpler for us when he summarized the two greatest commandments for people that don't want to read the whole Bible. Here it all is in two verses in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty simple, love God and love our fellow man. You know, in the end, we're all called to do these things, not out of duty or obligation, but out of love for our Savior. Our concern for the least of these should flow out of our hearts in love because we love Jesus. You see, God loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, and now Jesus is sending us to be his hands and his feet and his heart to the poorest of the poor in our world. Mother Teresa, one of my heroes, said, I am a little pencil in the hand of a writing God who's sending a love letter to the world. You see, the gospel, this good news, is about God's love in action, expressed to the world. And you and I, we have been called to demonstrate His love to a hurting and watching world. And that's why the gospel is such good news. Now, I've had this conversation with hundreds of people uh, over the last few years about what I call the hole in our gospel, and I I often hear something like this, Rich, the, the problems of poverty and injustice in our world are just so big and so overwhelming, and I'm just one person. What difference could I possibly make anyways? You know, one of the most common mistakes we can make is to believe that we have nothing of significance to offer that God could use. We're not rich enough, we're not smart enough, we're not skilled enough or spiritual enough to make much of a difference at all, especially in the face of huge problems. But you see, the point is God doesn't ask any of us to do the impossible. Mother Teresa also said this, we can do no great things, only small things with great love. Small things with great love. And I learned about one such small thing a couple of years ago. I learned a powerful lesson about the significance of even a small act of kindness, and the teaching tool involved the sharp elbow of my wife Renee, something God has used with great frequency and effectiveness in my (laughs) life over the years, now 35 years of marriage. I had just delivered the closing speech at a large gathering of World Vision donors on the topic of HIV and AIDS in Manhattan. And at the end of that talk, I challenged everyone in the room to sponsor the child whose photo had been cleverly placed by their dinner place setting that evening. Uh, And I sat down after the speech quite satisfied that my rousing remarks would motivate people to do the right thing. And as the music began to play and people began to fill out the cards, I bowed in prayer. It was just then that I felt this sharp elbow in my side. And it was Renee pointing to the photos of the two boys in front of our dinner place settings And whispering that we needed to sponsor them. I reminded her that we already sponsored a dozen children through World Vision. I reminded her of the pay cut we took. And that we certainly couldn't pick up another sponsored child at every World Vision event. Uh, And then I bowed my head again in reverent prayer. Well, the second time, the elbow cracked my third rib from the bottom. (laughs) And when I looked up, I looked over at Renee. And she was handing me the response card and the pen. And giving me that look. Uh, that I've come to recognize in my marriage and so I knew what I had to do and I reluctantly filled out that card and that night we became the proud sponsors of two brothers from Zambia named Morgan and Jackson. Well, two years went by and I was planning a trip to Zambia when my staff reminded me that I had those two sponsored boys there. Oh yeah, I said, that's right. Um, They suggested that we could film uh, my meeting with the two boys and use it for an upcoming World Vision TV special that I think is still playing at 4 in the morning on some channel. Uh, maybe you've seen it. And uh, and that we could tell their story. So literally a few weeks later, I found myself in Zambia going to meet Morgan and Jackson, who lived with their grandmother, a woman named Mary Bualia. And as I came to an open field, I could see that there were some people over there, and we were a large entourage that was kind of scary. And then I saw this elderly woman when she saw me break into a run, 74 years old, she ran across this field. And when she got to me, she fell on her knees and grabbed my hands and just kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, with tears flowing from her eyes. And she, she said these words. She said, when I learned two years ago that a family in America had decided to sponsor Morgan and Jackson, I knew that God had replaced the parents these boys had lost. And she said, if I had had wings... I would have flown to the airport to greet you and to thank you. I was stunned and embarrassed. And as I heard Mary Boilia's story unfold and met Morgan and Jackson, I realized that these two boys had almost died of starvation after losing both their mother and father to AIDS, leaving them destitute with their elderly grandmother and two other siblings, four children this grandmother was raising. And you see, that's the reason that Mary Boilly bowed almost to the ground to thank me, not because I was the president of World Vision. I don't even know she knew I was the president of World Vision. It was I was the man who had saved their lives. That's all she knew. I felt so ashamed that day, remembering that night two years earlier at the banquet. You see, it had only been a transaction to me. It cost me about $2 a day. I did it because my wife made me do it. I had not been thinking about the lives involved on the other end of that transaction. Or that my small gesture might have been a matter of life or death for someone else. Small things with great love. But you see, to Mary and those boys, that sponsorship decision was an answer to prayer that literally may have saved their lives. You see, now the boys were in school. They had food to eat. Crops were in the field. They had a brand new house that World Vision had built. It was bright turquoise. They loved turquoise in Africa, and we probably got the paint for free. And everything in their lives had changed because this little family now had hope again, hope for the future. And if you ever do watch that TV special that features my meeting with the two of them, you'll see me crying as I tell their story because it was so personal to me. So if anybody here in the sanctuary this morning believes that poverty is hopeless and that you're too insignificant to make a difference, you need to think again. Do you believe you have the power to change the world? I do, because I've seen the world change in 50 countries across this globe. I've seen the revolutionary power of this amazing gospel, the whole gospel, W-H-O-L-E. I've seen the hungry fed and people taught to fish and farm. I've seen wells being drilled and the thirsty given water. I've seen the sick healed, the lame walk, the blind given back their sight. I've met refugees who've been resettled, disaster victims who've been restored. I've seen widows comforted, orphans cared for, young girls freed from slavery and abuse. I've seen schools built and clinics opened, babies vaccinated, loans lifting the poor out of poverty. I've seen these things with my own eyes this amazing gospel transforming the darkest of places and the most broken of lives. I've seen what's possible when the gospel is put into action. Well, what about you? What about your church? Are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? You know, a pastor in a small church in Zambia met with me two years ago, and he said this. He lived in a pastored a church that had one light bulb hanging. It was made of corrugated tin and scraps of lumber. There was one light bulb in the church. And he said this, a church that lives within its four walls is no church at all. And he was not living within the four walls. He was out ministering to widows and orphans in his community, the poor helping the poor. I want you to imagine the possibilities for this church. You know, 2,000 years ago, 12 uneducated men changed the world Forever. Think of what even one church like yours might do. You really can change the world. It can start with this church. It can start right here. It can start today. You can all be world changers. But first, you each have to answer that question What does God expect of you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this place, this beautiful place. And as we meet here in comfort, Let us remember our brothers and sisters who live without comfort, in poverty, under persecution, without even a church building to gather in, without food, without water, without health care, sometimes without hope. Lord, today thousands of people, millions of people, Lord, across the globe are crying out to you in prayer. Victims of disasters, widows and orphans, refugees, the sick, the lame, the desperately poor. They're crying out for God. They're crying for help in their time of need. Help us, Lord, to be the answer to their prayers. Amen.